Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Republic of Congo President Sasu Ngeso has won another five years in office. Will he ever hand over power? And the Anglophone crisis in Cameroon continues to smolder. Is there a path to peace? Plus, we discuss presidential succession in Sub-Saharan Africa. Why are so many leaders setting up their sons to take over? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. Congolese President Denise Sassou Nguesso clinched another five years in office following a flawed election. What's the end game for one of the region's longest serving leaders? Joining me to discuss Congo Brazzaville and other issues are Brett Carter, assistant professor at the University of Southern California, Regina Sando, a journalist, and Paul Melly, a journalist and consulting fellow at the Africa program at Chatham House. Republic of Congo President Sasu Nguesso seized power in 1979, and he's been in control ever since, with the exception of just five years when he stepped down because he lost election and then decided he wanted power and start a civil war and then came back. And ever since then, he's won every single election. And this last one was under some pretty sketchy circumstances. One of Africa's longest ruling leaders, Congo Republic's Denis Sassou has won the country's election with 88% of the vote. This despite a prolonged economic crisis that has deepened over the past year. His principal rivals were in jail. One of the remaining eligible candidates died from COVID-19 hours after the polls closed. Sasu won the poll with 88%. Brett, give us a little background here. Why was this election so problematic? What does it mean for the next five years for Congo Brazzaville? Yeah, of course, Judd. So the key thing to understand about the recent election was the context in which it occurred. So the 2002 constitution that Sasu Nguesso effectively had his personal lawyers draft limited him to two terms of seven years each. So in order to retain power with a veneer of legitimacy, however thin, after 2016, Sasu Nguesso had to engineer a constitutional referendum, which occurred in October 2015. The October 2015 referendum elicited a series of protests across the country, some that drew up to 30,000 people. Now, these protests you know, rivaled in size the protests that forced Sasu Nguesso to call the 1991 National Conference, which ended with him losing sovereignty and ultimately power. So Sasu Nguesso pushed through the 2015 referendum to no one's surprise then, you know, and despite, again, widespread protests, he won the March 2016 referendum. Now, the key thing that happened after the March 2016 presidential election was early in the morning of April 4th, a group of opposition activists bombed a police station in the Makelikeli neighborhood of Brazzaville. You know, Sasu Nguesso kind of, you know, knew that this was kind of a last-ditch effort by citizens to catalyze a revolution. And so consequently, Sasu Nguesso responded with force. Entire villages were raised, tens of thousands of citizens were killed, but we don't really know because Sasu Nguesso blocked humanitarian organizations from the affected areas. And then in addition, the government jailed the two leading candidates, including General Jean-Marie Michel Makoko, who was an icon of the pro-democracy movement in the early 2000s, as well as Andre Combi-Salisa. 
So this notion, you know, that, that Sasso and Gesso, you know, claimed 88% of the vote, I mean, you know, that only makes sense if one understands that as a signal to citizens, right, which, which is that, you know, he can claim this absurd vote margin, and no one can really do anything about it at this point. I mean, what's interesting to me, Brett, is that it just seemed like the international community has just factored this in as business as usual. I mean, the United States really didn't react. And it's an important contrast to what happened in this earlier time period that you were referring to, where in 2016, the embassy expressed, you know, profound disappointment by the flawed election process. And this time, the statement was forgettable. I mean, a throwaway line about battling the effects of COVID-19, supporting economic recovery, strengthening our partnerships to protect the Congo River Basin. It just seems like you know, there's not much interest anymore. And so with this situation, Brett, what does it mean? Like, what does it mean when there is not going to be much international engagement? And I'm going to ask Paul a very similar question, but I kind of want your sense of what does the future of Congo Brazzaville look like, given the domestic circumstances and the international atmosphere? You're exactly right. The lack of response from the U.S. government was shocking. And frankly, you know, it is hard to understand. I mean, you know, it's clear that the Sassoon government has been receiving substantial military and weapons support from Turkey, from Saudi Arabia, from China, from Russia. So is it possible you know, that the U.S. is effectively kind of ceding the Congolese government kind of you know, to a sphere of influence of a set of autocracies? That's possible, but you know, it's really hard to understand. And I should say, too, that international engagement is absolutely pivotal for the country's future. So I mentioned uh, General Makoko. He was chief of staff of the military at the time and guaranteed the conference's security, even as the conference declared itself sovereign and effectively stripped Sassoon himself of sovereignty. Now, General Makoko is from the North, but because he's such an icon of the pro-democracy movement, he enjoys widespread support in the South as well. And so General Makoko is able to kind of bridge the political cleavage between North and South that has really animated Congolese politics since you know, independence in 1916 and even before that. Whenever General Makoko is released from prison, whenever that happens, he'll be welcomed as a martyr by citizens you know, from again across the north-south cleavage. Sassoon Gesso knows that, and so his strategy is to ensure that that doesn't happen. So it seems to me that, you know, that the best chance for real political change is the international community securing General Makoko's release. Okay, that's a great point. And Paul, maybe you could help us think about this because I'm scratching my head on what's the real break here for a more clear-cut engagement, clear position from the international community and what's happening in Congo-Brazzaville. I mean, is it really oil? I mean, Sasu doesn't do that much regional diplomacy. You know, why do you think the international community remains quiet, given all the things that Brett's mentioned? I think there are several things. Certainly, interests come into it a bit. Congo is a significant, though not overwhelmingly important, but a significant a source of oil for Total, the main French oil major, and also for ENI, the Italian oil company. It's also true that Congo has played a helpful role, should we say, in the management of regional crises, particularly the crisis in the Central African Republic. But I don't think those two, what you might call national interest or strategic interest factors alone, explain the situation. It's almost as if the outside world and uh, 
particularly France, the former colonial power, and more generally the European Union and the US, have just placed Congo-Brazzaville in the sort of too difficult box, along actually with a number of the other Central African oil family autocracies uh, like Equatorial Guinea, like uh, Gabon. And it's as if the reform and modernization agenda that the West is trying to push forward in some other parts of Africa, and uh, which uh, Macron, for example, uh, just this week in his press conference before the G7, talking very strongly about why he's suspended cooperation with the army in Mali because there's been a further undemocratic coup, etc. It's as if that agenda, when it comes to those Central African countries, Western governments just seem to feel unable to push it forward and unwilling to really take matters to a really hard, hard line. And in the case of France, it's partly perhaps explained by post-colonial history. In the decades after independence, there was, as it were, a culture of French engagement with former colonies, which became known by the elliptical phrase France-Afrique. And what that basically meant was a network of connections and personal encounters and shared vested interests between the French political elite and the ruling political elites of African countries. But it was really at its most sort of fully expressed, if you like, in the Central African region, much more than in West Africa. That's become something that recent French governments, and particularly Macron, they want to distance themselves from that past. So they've tried to keep quite a bit of space. I mean, Macron has, as we know, he's traveled constantly to Africa, but he hasn't been to Cameroon or Gabon or Congo-Brazzaville at all, despite the fact that they are long-standing uh, French partners. It's as if he's sort of trying to engage with Congo on another axis, which is the axis of financial crisis. And it's one area where Congo is vulnerable. The country is hugely indebted, one of the most indebted in the world in per capita terms. He will just engage even more deeply with China and those other partners who have no interest in governance issues than before. But the other interesting question is whether at some point the Congolese street and civil society will ever manage to accumulate a sort of a level of willingness to campaign and to bring pressure, whether that's even possible, as they did at the beginning of the 1990s. And it may be that the experience, particularly the aftermath of the 1997 civil war, where Sasu retook power through a really horrendously brutal war, in which ethnic factors, political factors, really played a very powerful role. And then there was brutal repression for years and years of opposition political activists. And it may be that a lot of Congolese are just basically resigned to the fact that he's there and there's a level of risk they don't feel able to confront him. But for all those different reasons, the West seems to sort of hold back and not really exert pressure. It does things that in terms of political power pinpricks, even if they get headlines abroad, like uh, what's called the Bien Malaki inquiry in France, which is 
the French judicial probe into assets in, that are held in France by African presidential families, but which have been financed with the proceeds of corruption. And quite a number of the Sassou family have been uh, placed formally under investigation. His property was seized right in Paris, and we did an episode earlier in our show about some of the global witness reports about Sassou's children, and we'll talk about that a little more. But there's been exposés and official French action against his government and him as a person. There has, and there's also been um, French judges in the French judicial system, you know, investigating judges can launch a probe, whatever the political masters might think of it. For a number of years, they pursued a a probe into what was called the Beach Affair, which is the massacre in 1999 of 353 opposition, basically men and boys who were suspected by the government of having been involved in opposition guerrilla activity and who were induced to return to Brazzaville under a refugee return program, but were basically detained on arrival and never seen again. And once again, it's as if Nobody in the international community in the West who's concerned about governance issues really wants to push it with Congo Brazzaville. Well, this is where I think we really need to make the point that we have a Biden administration that is talking about democracy and governance, says this will be a priority for them. As you mentioned, Paul, not only has Macron made some very strong statements about what's happening in Mali, but he just recently withdrew support for the government in Central African Republic in part because of its ties to Russia. So there is an opportunity here to not pick and choose, but to be more consistent in their policies. And I think we'll have an opportunity to talk about some of this as we get later on. But right now I want to turn to Cameroon. Okay, let's move to Cameroon. We haven't discussed the Anglophone crisis, I think, since early 2020, and I thought it was worthwhile to provide an update. To put it mildly, Cameroon is a divided country. It is divided by language, and for the past five years, it has been divided by a deadly civil war known as the Anglophone crisis. Regina, this conflict continues to worsen. Uh, The U.N. says there have been more than 700,000 people internally displaced, tens of thousands of refugees. There's been more than 4,000 people killed, at least 2,000 cases of rape. Seems to me that the Swiss-led negotiations are going nowhere. I'd like you to just provide a little bit of your sense of where the crisis is. Right now, it's really difficult to know exactly where this crisis is because first, It is confusing. One day we have news about Swiss talks. Another day we have news about the All Anglophones Conference that is going to help bring the crisis to an end or begin the process of negotiations. And um, another conference that had to hold in the USA, but then it did not work out because of the coronavirus. So I don't know, but it seems. Everything that is being done to solve the crisis is being fought somehow by invisible hands. Now, the only way out of this crisis is probably for Cameroonians to take matters into their hands. When I'm talking about Cameroonians, I mean uh, 
members of the civil society because the government has spoken about efforts. They have efforts. They've created a DDR center for separatist fighters, for former separatist fighters. But then we keep on hearing strikes in there or protests in there every day. We've heard about the commissions that they've set up to put an end to the crisis, but then all of these are not working. We've heard about the national dialogue that took place in Cameroon some two years ago, but after the national dialogue, nothing has changed. Many people were expecting uh, separatists to be invited for this dialogue, but most of the key actors were either in jail or out of the country, so they did not participate in the dialogue. Now, on the other hand, we have the rebel groups or the English-speaking um, separatist uh, fighters who are power drunk. There's a lot of stuff that is going on in the Northwest and Southwest regions that is really difficult to explain. There are some areas where people cannot stay or live in comfortably. That's why you keep on getting the numbers of displaced citizens climbing up every day. People keep on moving because they can no longer stay there. And these guys, there's a war between them and the military. And even though the military could say they are killing these guys, they will neutralize, as they call it. But the next day, there's a new general. There's a new group of soldiers fighting. And now there's another fraction of people that are coming up, which I will call a danger. There's some people who actually go around saying they are separatist fighters and are extorting people, killing people, kidnapping people. And in the end, they'll say, no, these guys are not um, separatist fighters. They are thieves. Even if talks begin, we're going to have people out there who are still a danger in these regions. Right now, the only group that is left, the only source of hope, local activists who have been putting a lot of pressure on the government, on the international community, and we're already hearing about the United States uh, talking about visa restrictions. If we hear visa restrictions, probably we'll get stuff like freezing of accounts, assets will be seized. And I think that's going to be a right step in the right direction. If these people being targeted at the international level, probably they're going to stop fueling this crisis that has been making so many lives miserable for the past four years. Regina, I, you know, you said earlier that you didn't know how to explain such a complicated situation, but I think you did a phenomenal job and and really articulated how desperate it is and how difficult it is to see a future right now that ends in peace. As you said, the government doesn't seem committed to an inclusive dialogue. It seems pretty ham-fisted in any of the concessions it's made. And then it's just so fractured in Anglophone Cameroon, where you've got civil society activists, as you point out, really working very hard for peace. But then you've got criminal groups and the separatists, which do all sorts of different things from fighting each other to um, exploiting the civilians to as well as fighting the government. So it's very difficult, I think, to push for dialogue when you've got different groups. They have different goals and different tactics. And, you know, one thing that you said, Regina, that was interesting was about sort of an invisible hand. And I guess many people, Paul, including me, believe that the French could do more here. I mean, they've condemned the violence. They've called for dialogue, but they certainly have leverage. This is one of those Central African countries that you talked about earlier. Is there more that France should be doing that President Macron should be doing? 
There is more, but it's politically complicated. It's not difficult in France, I think, for him to do more. But it's very interesting. If you look at what happened at the French Agricultural Show, I think it was the early 2020, Macron was basically what we say as a journalist, he was doorstepped by a, an Anglophone Cameroon rights campaigner. And he basically said to this guy on live television, I hear what you're saying. Uh, the situation is terrible. I'm regularly on the phone to President Beer. It can't carry on like this. He has to talk. He has to negotiate and open up dialogue. And on the one side, people then say, at last he's done something in public. But I've also heard Cameroonians, other Cameroonians say, what's he doing interfering in our affairs? He's the former colonial power. He should stay out of it. And so it's very difficult. The, the thing that strikes me that particularly with all these Central African crises is very noticeable in contrast with West Africa is there isn't really a regional structure or culture of crisis mediation and a view that that would be legitimate. In the current Mali crisis, ECOWAS delegations are in Bamako constantly and there's a generalized acceptance in Mali that ECOWAS has a role and a right to be involved and to set certain tram lines. Now, in the Central African region, that culture isn't really there. Cameroonian state doesn't seem to want any external involvement, either by its neighbours or by the wider African community. There isn't a sort of culture of Central African countries having some sort of ground rules about what is an acceptable way to resolve crises or deal with political problems. So I think that makes it much worse. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And, and we're seeing that in Chad as well. It's not like there's a big ECAS, which is the regional body or one of the regional bodies for Central Africa that is leading the charge in the way that ECOWAS has tried to mediate in, in Mali or in Burkina. I mean, even SADC in South Africa and EGAD, while they may not be as effective as pushing for conflict, they are engaged. It's assumed that they would be involved in that conversation. So Brett, I just want you to step back a little bit because you've done a lot of research about challenging autocracies. You've got a fractured landscape that Regina mentioned. You've got a recalcitrant leadership in Paul Bia. You don't have a regional body, as Paul mentioned. The French have their own complications. How does this play out? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I would just say three things. First, as long as the movement for secession or for you know, some sort of devolution into kind of a, a true federal type structure, you know, as long as the Anglophone movement is divided, the BIA military, the BIA government will have the upper hand. Second, in the meantime, I think that we should expect the lack of command and control that many of these armed groups who are pushing for secession those command control issues will have horrible consequences for citizens who I think will bear the cost of having young men with weapons in their neighborhoods who are more or less unconstrained by senior leaders of the movement. And I would just add a third thing, you know, which is that to my mind, you know, the lack of some kind of you know, regional body that might serve as a mediator is, I think, you know, less a function of culture and, and more an outcome of this set of governments themselves. You know, so to my mind, you know, I think the lack of a stronger regional presence is very much a function of these governments' interests in sustaining power via repression. 
That was really helpful, Brett. And you actually set us up nicely for our final conversation, which is talking about this group of countries and a phenomenon that we're seeing in almost all of them, which is the growing number of sons of presidents who are being groomed to take over for the presidency. Now, it's important to note that I'm not criticizing someone, an offspring who wants to follow their parent to the presidency or a premiership in a free and fair election. That happens across the world. It happens in the United States at least twice. We've seen that in Canada. It's happened in Kenya and Botswana. But in those cases, it's several decades or years between this father to son transition. In Central Africa and in some other countries across this region, that is not what we're seeing. We see a father set up his son to assume power, often unconstitutionally, immediately upon his death. And that's what seems to be happening right now in Cameroon, the Republic of Congo, Equatorial Guinea. It's also happening in Uganda. Paul, you wrote a great article about this in BBC. And I think it was prompted by the fact that when President Debbie of Chad died, his 37-year-old son took over. So maybe you can just elucidate this trend for us and phenomenon. Well, I think it's very striking that in those countries where the incumbent, shall we say, family regime dominates the system, they are lining the situation because if you have somebody who's an autocrat and there's been a lot of corruption and there's possibly been some very serious human rights abuses, certainly in some of these countries, Congo, as we were saying, what is the best way to protect the family and people who are associated with the regime and possibly an elderly president who retires? Who is the safest sort of guarantee of security for that power system and that group of vested interests and those individuals? It possibly is the successor son. And it's very interesting to see in Gabon at the moment, for example, Nouradin Bongo Ondimba, who is Ali Bongo's son, has now been appointed as officially his father's closest aide. And so all instructions from his father pass out to the rest of the system via Nouradin. So he has this extraordinary position of power and control of information, if you like, for the system. And yet and the interesting thing is when it, there's suddenly a shock event that shakes these arrangements, then they can be exposed. And we can see it in Chad because the late President Debbie died and his son stepped in to head the military council that is organising the transition. But immediately there was a lot of pressure from Chadian civil society and actually from some other countries in the region, uh, such as Niger and Mauritania and from France, people saying, you've got to have dialogue. Debbie was an unusual individual. You can't just pass the succession on. But when it's locked down and controlled, as it is in Equatorial Guinea, in Congo and in Gabon, at least, Cameroon's a different picture, perhaps, the regimes can do this sort of self-protecting succession, unless it were to, who knows, perhaps in one of those countries, a further attempt might spark mass unrest. I mean, the last Gabon election was very close, which suggests that perhaps the Gabonese may not be willing to tolerate such a succession again. Regina, you wrote a very good piece about Frank Bia in Cameroon 
This was in The Continent, which many of our listeners know is one of our favorite sources for news and analysis. Can you talk a little bit about what you wrote? Who is Frank Bia? Is he in line to succeed his father? How does that match with some of the broader trends that Paul's talking about? Frank Bia is a, he's a businessman. And um, unlike other African countries that the son succeeds the father, Frank has never had any political position in Cameroon. That's why it's a little confusing. People don't know what kind of person he's going to be. He's just a businessman. He studied abroad in Europe. And now he's back in Cameroon. But now we have a situation where people think that uh, the president, Pobia, is not going to run again for the presidential elections, which comes up in 2025. Now, who is going to replace him? We don't see anybody. At the same time, we have some groups with a political party rallying all of them behind one person, about 50,000 people, both in Cameroon and abroad, rallying behind one person. This alone is making a lot of people, I think, scared because of what has been happening already in the country and around, talking about Semak countries that have, um, we've had this uh, father to son thing. Now, uh, Frank Bia, on his part, who's been a quiet person, we do not know who he is, the kind of life he lives. And now Cameroonians are like, he could be like his father. And we do not want that. We want somebody who is new. But Frank Bia, on the other hand, has not said this group or this group of people who are supporting me, I'll be willing to go in for elections when the time comes. He has been quiet about it. The government doesn't want to talk about it. This thing is very common. It's common. It happened in Chad. It happened in Gabon. And it could happen in Cameroon. And definitely nothing is going to happen. And we are going to have a situation in Cameroon that many people are afraid of. The same person who is going to come in with the same ideas of his father. Because if he is going to be president, then his father's friends will be the one controlling Cameroon with him. So this is a case, Regina, that there aren't any overt signs that Frank Bia is going to take over. But in the absence of that and the patterns in the region and the sort of the silence from the state house and from the president and his family, people are pointing fingers and they've done nothing to dispel it. Yeah, people are pointing fingers because we are in a region where things happen and there's this saying, there is no smoke without fire. So if something like this is happening, it means it's a whole plan. It's something that is being cooked and they are getting people ready so that when 2025 comes, people will be like, oh, what's happening? But then they'll be like, oh, well, we knew about it already. And then they move on because they've given them a lot of time to assimilate what's going to happen, to have it in the back of their minds that come 2025, they're going to have a president who is going to be the incumbent's son. So I just think they are using this period to set the agenda and um, making people already comfortable with what is going to happen in 2025. So there's smoke in Cameroon. I would argue, Brad, that there's fire in Congo Brazzaville. The president's son, Denise Cristal, his you know, now has a job in the cabinet. 
Uh, there's much more, I think, some signs that he could be groomed to replace his father. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what's happening in Congo Brazzaville with succession? And then I'm going to ask the same question to Regina, but let me give you first crack on it. Can civil society, at least in the case of Congo Brazzaville, do anything about it? I think you're um, exactly right about the fire comment. And I should say that earlier, Paul mentioned, I think correctly, that many in the international community seem to have put Congo, you know, Gabon as well, perhaps others, into the too hard category, you know, as, as though that you know, there's just very little that the international community can do to foster real political change. And in my view, you know, for the international community, you know, I think that's a real misunderstanding of internal Congolese politics. So in the early 2000s, Denis Christel, Sassou Gesso's son, was one among several male family members who was considered as a potential successor. You know, by the early 2010s, um, it was clear that Denis Christel was indeed Sassou Gesso's choice. He was basically given a parliamentary seat in 2007 from the Oyo constituency, which is Sassou Gesso's native village in northern Congo. He was, uh, Denis Christel was appointed to the PCT Central Committee a few years later in 2012. But you know, the key thing to know is that Denis Christel is a problematic successor, to say the very, very least. He's widely regarded by senior regime officials and many international partners as really quite incompetent. Um, he's had this reputation from, you know, at least since the early 2010s, whenever Sassou Nguesso was really thinking about possibilities of succession. Denis Christel was regarded by everyone, of course, as profoundly corrupt, um, you know, and, and with obviously good reason. Denis Christel also has no real military support. You know, so while there are kind of parts of the family who support Denis Christel's succession, Again, he's a very, very problematic choice. And one of the key dynamics to understand Congolese politics, and I should add Gabonese politics as well, is that these ruling families aren't monolithic at all. In fact, they're quite sprawling and in both Congo and Gabon, uh, really quite divided. You know, it's far from certain that Sasso and Gesso will be able to transfer power to Denis Christel. Now, Judd, as you mentioned, Sasso and Gesso uh, gave Denis Christel the International Cooperation Ministry, you know, two weeks ago in the newly formed government. To be clear, this International Cooperation Ministry has never existed before. It's always been part of the Foreign Affairs Ministry. Now, even senior diplomats in Brazzaville don't really know what Denis Christel's actual job is. And as best I can tell from, again, um, sources in the palace, is that this is an extended audition for Denis Christel kind of begin to generate some support among international partners. Think in particular uh, Beijing, Moscow, Paris, Washington as well, to develop a sense that um, he would indeed be suitable to succeed. Um, because, you know, at the moment, it's pretty clear that Denis Christel won't really have the family's full backing. Brett, I want you to just do one last thing here is, you know, the role of civil society. Paul mentioned earlier that it's fairly scarred from the Civil War. Can they play a role in shaping this, or is this going to be all internal elite, internal family issues? That's a great question. Look, I think there's clearly a role for civil society. So again, you know, the October 2015 referendum marked a bright red line for so many in the country, right? I know of, you know, for instance, prominent figures in the, in the diaspora who returned to Brazzaville you know, precisely so they could be part of an uprising around the 2015 referendum, the 2016 election. So, you know, in some sense, you know, the key to understanding, you know, why this 2021 election met such little resistance 
is because of, of the massive violence that Sasso and Gesso employed against civilians in Poole, really for the duration of, from like, you know, April 5th, 2016, through the end of the year, and then of course the incarceration of General Makoko and Columbia Salisa for the next 20 years um, or so. So, it, you know, it's clear that civil society, I think, has, you know, the memories of 2016 fresh in their mind, but dynamics can change, right? And, and so, again, you know, that's why I think putting these countries in the too hard category is pretty short-sighted. And so, you know, one of the events that could really change the dynamics in Congo would be, again, the release of General Makoko, you know, precisely because General Makoko is regarded as an icon of the pro-democracy movement in the early 1990s, precisely because, you know, he can straddle the, the north-south political divide. The moment that Sasso Nguesso is forced to release him, General Makoko will be welcomed as a martyr. He's the closest that Congo would have to a figure like Nelson Mandela, right? And so right now, sure, you know, the, the prospect of change coming from the streets seems pretty remote, but things can happen. And look, you know, the backdrop of persistent financial crisis in Congo is real. In 2004, Congo was the world's most heavily indebted country on a per capita basis. Sasu Nguesso got a, a debt relief um, as part of the heavily indebted Poor Countries Initiative in 2010. Seven years later, the country's debt to GDP ratio by 2017 was back up to 130% due to persistent economic mismanagement by the Sasu Nguesso government. So given this persistent financial crisis, the international community really does have some leverage to exploit. And again, the key thing that the international community can do would be to press for General Makoko's release. I want to have one last question, and I want to broaden out a little bit from Congo Brazzaville. I think you painted a really detailed picture. Thankfully, I think, Paul, you gave us a very effective snapshot of Gabon. But Regina, if you could just give us your sense of civil society, maybe beyond what's happening in Brazzaville, can civil society make a difference here in terms of preventing unconstitutional or illegitimate transfers of power? And I just want to again say I am not making a point about that sons or daughters cannot aspire to be their country's top leader, but I'm just focused here about when everything is prearranged, prepackaged, and rigged. You know, what is the role of civil society in your view? Okay, now I'm going to focus on Cameroon because I think the role of the civil society should not be overlooked. But in Cameroon, we've had situations where members of civil society have been treated poorly. But at the same time, civil society have their own problems, have been confronted with their own problems, uh, such as lack of organization, a sense of direction, leadership, and uh, some sort of political apathy. Now, I think if we have a civil society that is determined and uh, we have uh, members who will not give up easily, no matter their political affiliations and um, ages, no matter if they're youths or old people, if we have people who are committed for change, I think it's going to be possible for them to prevent unconstitutional or illegitimate transfers of power to offspring. But now the situation in Cameroon, it sounds really promising, but we are in a country that has already abolished the limitation of the presidential mandate. Cameroon is, I think, among one of the six countries in Africa that has um, abolished that. And when that happened, I'm sure the civil society was there shouting and hoping for change. But they were arrested, beaten, and some of them were promised uh, posts and they 
stepped back. Now, we have a situation where those that are supporting a son to come into power are saying there is no clause in the constitution that prevents a son from taking over from his father. He is uh, a citizen and could be elected. But this is going to be a situation where we have the same people with the same ideas staying there for so long and it means nothing is going to change in the country. So the civil society, I think, if they want to change uh, something or want to make a change or to prevent all of this, they have to start working out. Cameroon has so many problems, but they should focus on all of that, be the Anglophone crisis, the Boko Haram war, the political crisis in Cameroon, the opposition and the ruling party. They have to start now. They have to come together, recruit more people, be very steadfast about what they want, because... Cameroon is a country where we, I will not really say there is freedom of speech. So they have to be ready for so many things. No matter the intimidation, they need to be steadfast because if they are steadfast, I think they are going to make a change. So the civil society in Cameroon, I believe, if they want to make a change, they need a sense of direction. They need to organize themselves. They need to leave their political affiliations. With that, I think they could stop whatever is being uh, cooked up in Cameroon from getting ready. Let me put it that way. Regina, I, I really like that you ended with this sort of call to arms because this has been a fairly depressing episode. Let me thank you and Paul and Brett for joining us and we'll see everyone in two weeks. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks.